If you can, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 22. Uh, We'll be looking uh, at the last verse of that chapter and then moving on into chapter 23, we'll be going up to verse 11. So Acts chapter 22, verse 30 through 23, verse 11. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to me, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so, must, so, must, so you must testify also in Rome. Thus ends our reading of God's merciful word. May all who hear it find that they are living their life before God in all good conscience. It was in the year 1811 that the federal government of the United States of America received an anonymous letter with an attachment of $5. The author of this letter, whomever he was, stated that he had defrauded the government by not paying the correct amount of taxes and that he wanted to make amends by paying for it now. He wanted to make things right. Well, since that time, and almost, almost every year since, the U.S. government has been receiving anonymous letters filled with tax dollars from guilt-ridden citizens. So why do people do this? Why, why do they take the effort to try to make things right? I, I would argue that it is because they hold a guilty conscience 
and that the weight of that conscience grows over time. Eventually it becomes too much to bear, and these people would rather part with their money than to live another day with their deceit. So what, what does it take to have a clear conscience? How, how does one remove those feelings of guilt and shame that lie deep within? Can you remove them? Can making amends like those who, who, who tried to pay back the, the government, will that do the trick? Is that enough? Or is something more needed? In our passage today, we, we will look at a man who, who could say with a straight face, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience. How, how could anyone make such a claim? How, how could they be so bold to say that before God that they had no pangs of guilt? That when they consider their life, they don't lower their head in shame. I mean, can someone truly be that innocent? This is what Luke, our, our author, is trying to answer for us. He, he, he wants to answer this question. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Now, before we jump in, let's, let's remind ourselves of where we've been. When we last left off, the Apostle Paul had been arrested. Remember, a riot had broken out near the temple gates as Paul had been accused of bringing a Gentile into the inner courts and thus defiling holy ground. And if you remember, this angry mob, they wanted to kill Paul. They had dragged him out of that temple and they were attempting to pummel him to death. And yet it was at that moment that the, that the Romans stepped in. That the military tribune over Jerusalem, this man named Claudius Lysias, had intervened. He was not going to allow, allow mob violence to have its way in Jerusalem. Not in his watch. And so he had Paul, he had Paul arrested and taken to the Tower of Antonia. This, this Claudius, he was bound and determined to get, get to the bottom of this, he, to figuring out exactly what was going on. He, he wanted to know why these J- Jews were so riled up. And what could Paul have done that, that could have made them so angry? And so he allowed Paul to speak to the crowd in order to give his defense. Perhaps through this, Claudius could get the answers that he wanted. And yet when Paul spoke... If you remember, he spoke in the, in the Hebrew language, and Claudius couldn't understand a single word. And instead of Paul appeasing the crowds, he, he seemed to enrage them even further. Well, Claudius had seen enough, and so he had ordered Paul to be flogged in order that he might extract the information that he wanted. But as Paul was being stretched out for the whip, And as he was about to receive that first blow, Paul had declared to these soldiers that he was a Roman citizen and that they had no right to do what they were doing. Well, when these soldiers heard that Paul was a Roman citizen, this put a a great fear within their hearts. 
For as a Roman citizen, Paul was under the protection of Caesar. So no, Paul would not receive those lashings. Rather, he, he would have to be treated with dignity, as was his privilege as a Roman. And, and yet the tribune, Claudius Lysias, he, he still wanted the truth. He, he wanted to know why these Jews were foaming at the mouth and screaming for Paul's head. What was the accusation that they were bringing against this man? For he could not justify holding Paul, particularly since he was a citizen. And unless there was some type of formalized charge that he was being accused of, he would have to have Paul released and hope that the chaos would simply die out. And that was when Claudius implemented a new strategy. And this brings us to our passage for today. Look at, look at Acts chapter 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So Claudius had decided to hold this type of preliminary hearing where, where the Jewish high council, also known as the Sanhedrin, would act as prosecuting attorneys, and the Apostle Paul would be the defendant. The, this, this was why he was summoning these men together. You see, Claudius thought that, that in a more controlled setting, in, in a setting where, where the mob was taken out of play, well, then he would finally get some answers. Well, let's see if Claudius' plan worked. Would there be any formalized charge brought against Paul? Look, look at chapter 23. Look at verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And so Paul begins his defense by declaring his innocence before God. He said that he had lived his life before God in all good conscience. Now this is a bold statement for Paul to make. I mean, how could he say those words and truly mean them? Isn't this the same Paul who dragged Christians from their homes, had them arrested, and then tried and sentenced to death? Isn't this the same man who, 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 who referred to himself as the chief of sinners? So how can he say, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day? Well, in one sense of the word, the words good conscience, this does make sense. For I, I think in Paul's mind, he had always tried to put God before all other things. Even in his earlier days before he was a Christian, he had committed to becoming a Pharisee. He even studied under the great Rabbi Gamaliel. And so he was dedicated to both God and to God's word. And yet this didn't lead to a godly life, did it? Rather, it led to a zealous life guided by ignorance. And as we learned before, when one has a zeal that is without a knowledge of the truth, 
well, that can lead to great error. And that's because a person's conscience doesn't always line up with the truth. And so when we see Paul doing these heinous things, he he truly was convinced that he was doing God's will. But what is interesting about our passage is that Paul's accusers, well, they weren't really interested in Paul's pharisaical past. They, they, they were more concerned with Paul's present, with, with his life as a Christian, and, and with the things that he was now teaching. Remember, Paul, Paul had been accused by the Jews in Asia that he, that he taught against the people of God, that, that he taught against the law of God, and that he taught against the temple. That, that holy place where the living God dwelt. And then they also accused him of bringing a Gentile into the inner courts, thus defiling holy ground, something which Paul never did. And so these were the charges that, that were being laid against him, and Paul knew this. And so when Paul said that he had lived his life before God in all good conscience, he, he was also refuting those charges. The charge is that he was somehow not following God's standards, the standards that God had set out for his people. Let's see how these Jewish leaders reacted to Paul's words. Look, look at verse 2. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Now, apparently, these men did not appreciate Paul's words. This, this high priest ordered those who were standing by to strike him in the mouth. So what's, what's going on here? What's with the striking of the mouth? I mean, so far Paul, Paul has said very little, right? And what little he did say had caused another visceral reaction. This, this Ananias, he was so enraged that as the acting high priest, he, he felt that it was his duty to shut Paul's mouth for him. He, he believed Paul to be a liar, and he would brand him as such by bringing shame upon him. And yet before a, a fist was thrown, Paul would speak his own mind regarding what he thought of this Ananias. Look, look, look at verse 3. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now, now this insult that Paul fired back at this man was actually a reference to a passage in Ezekiel, where, where God was condemning the false prophets of that time because they were preaching peace when there was no peace. Look, look, look at Ezekiel chapter 13, verses 8 through 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord God. 
precisely because they have misled my people, saying, peace, when there is no peace, and because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said of you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash, and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus I will spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash, and will say to you, The wall is no more, nor those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord God. This whitewashing was a, was a trick that, that was done by dis, dishonest builders. What they would do is they would stack these bricks up, but they wouldn't use any mortar to hold them together. And then they would smear it, they would cover it with this whitewash plaster veneer in order to make it look solid on the outside. And yet deep within, the wall was extremely weak and could be toppled very, very easily. That, that's what these false prophets were doing. They, they would preach peace to the people by declaring that God would come to their aid. When in reality, they should have been calling the people to repentance for God's judgment was at hand. And thus their words were like these faulty walls. They, they sounded good to the ear, yet they were deceptive and only led to great destruction. And so what Paul was insinuating when he, when he had called the high priest a whitewashed wall was that he too was like those prophets of old going against the will of the Lord. And what did Paul say? He said, are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck? Paul was pointing out the, the hypocrisy of Ananias' command. I mean, here he was, part of this council that was supposed to judge God's people fairly. And yet before any evidence was brought forth, any testimony, he commanded that the defendant's mouth be shut and be deemed a liar. Look at, look at Leviticus 19, verse 15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. This high priest was demonstrating his partiality against Paul. For Paul had yet to be proven guilty of anything. And yet Ananias ordered him to be struck in the mouth as a way to shut him up. As a way to deem him a liar. This high priest, he was ready to convict without any evidence and without any testimony. 
And yet, even though Paul was sensing this miscarriage of justice, he would soon discover that he had spoken in haste. Look at verses 4 and 5. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. This is what I find amazing about this passage of Scripture. For in Paul, we, we, we find a, a humility that, that's very, very rare. I mean, Paul was in a, a room full of men who wanted him dead, men who were hostile towards him, men who were willing to pervert justice to achieve their ends. And yet in the midst of all of that, Paul was willing to admit his failings and to repent. You, you see, this, this rebuke upon Paul was justified. Paul truly was speaking evil towards a ruler of his people. And this is commanded by the Lord not to be done. I mean, Exodus chapter 22, verse 28 says this, You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Now, now Paul didn't know that this man was a high priest, and so this was a sin of ignorance. And yet in the same breath, Paul, he, he spoke rashly before even investigating the matter. He, he let his emotions get the best of him, and he, and he knew he was in the wrong. And even though, even though this high priest was not following God's commands, that didn't matter. For the conduct of another, of another man shouldn't have any bearing on Paul's behavior. And so in front of the whole Sanhedrin, Paul acknowledged his family. He, he humbled himself before these men and admitted his wrong. The question I have for you is this. How do you view your own sin? Do you make excuses for it? Or are you quick to admit your own failings? Do, do you blame other people for your actions because of how they have treated you? Or do you take responsibility when you are in the wrong? I mean, how many of you have ever said this? He made me do it. Or, if it wasn't for her, I, I would have never... And fill in, the, fill in the blank. I mean, do you see how quickly we can shift the blame? And yet the truth of the matter is, the only one who can cause you to sin is you. And yet when you do sin, and we all sin, then, then you, should, you should follow Paul's example here. You, you should be open and honest about it. And you should do so right away. Perhaps this was one of the reasons why Paul had a good conscience before God. Because he was a man who was quick to repent. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. That's a great promise, is it not? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I ask you again, are you, are you quick to repent? When, when you recognize that you were in the wrong, are you willing to man up and, and to own what you did, even when there have been wrongs done to you? That's hard to do in our culture today. But it's what we should be doing as Christians. It, it, this is what it means to be a Christian. It, it is to live a life in continual repentance. I, I don't know about you, but I am in constant need of God's mercy. And that's because each and every day I am in a battle with my sinful nature. And yet when we confess our sins, that, that is when God brings about his healing. He will cleanse our conscience. He will remove our guilt. He will remove our shame. Paul was a man who was quick to repent. And I truly believe that was one of the reasons why he could confidently say, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience. Look at verses 6 through 8. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Now, now, when Paul said that he was a Pharisee, immediately half that room wanted to, to condemn him right then and there. And yet the other half suddenly took pause. Now, wait a minute. Maybe this Paul guy isn't so bad. Now, Paul had been raised as a Pharisee. And it was true that, that he was still a, a Pharisee, at least in a certain sense of the word. Not in the sense that he had party ties or believed everything that they believed, especially when it came to their convictions in regard to the law. But he was a Pharisee in the sense that, that he was in, in agreement with them about things like angels and spirits, and in particular, the resurrection. And because of Paul's history as a Pharisee, he, he knew all about the, the, the intricacies when it came to Pharisaical beliefs, as well as their theological differences with the Sadducees. He, he knew how these two groups despised one another, how they would constantly debate and bicker with one another, another over these theological differences. And he knew that one of the main points of contention had to do with the resurrection. You see, these Sadducees, they, they only accepted the first five books of Moses as truly being God's word. 
while the Pharisees took the whole of the Old Testament. This meant that books such as Ezekiel and Daniel, books which explicitly declare a future resurrection, well, well, these were never really considered by the Sadducees to be the word of God. And thus these Sadducees held to a, a deficient belief when it came to life after death. And yet the Pharisees, they did believe in the resurrection. They had, they had placed their hope that God would one day bring the dead back to life to join him in his eternal kingdom. But it wasn't only the resurrection that was in play, but also the, the, way, that, the way that God interacted with his people. You, you see, the Sadducees, they had a, a hard time when it came to God's imminence, to God's close interaction with this world. They, they believed that after Moses, that after the construction of the, the tabernacle and the temple, that God had now limited himself to interacting only in this way. That meant that these Sadducees, they, they, were, they were so tightly knit to the temple and the temple system. And that they, they, they really couldn't see any other way that God could relate to his people except through that sacrificial system. And so in, in many ways, uh, the Sadducees held to a, a semi-deistic theology. Yes, God was real to them, but they, they didn't believe that he really interacted throughout the world outside of his presence within the Holy of Holies. And thus they didn't believe in things like angels and spirits. And so when you, when you add this all up, this put them in direct odds with the Pharisees. And so when Paul said that it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial, well, Paul knew exactly what he was doing there. He, he was pitting these two groups against one another. And it was true that it was for this reason that he was on trial. For that was his testimony before the masses the day before. How on the road to Damascus, he had seen the resurrected Jesus. And how Jesus had shown to him that he is the Messiah. That he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That he is the resurrection and the life. And that it is only through him that anyone can come to the Father. And so yes, it was because of his hope in the resurrection of the dead that Paul was on trial. And it was on this point that the Pharisees had it right. I, I hope you see what Paul's doing here. He, he was being as shrewd as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. And it had caused these two factions to divert their attention off of him and focus it upon one another. Let's see that focus. Look at, look at verse 9. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? This great clamor, this sharp contention was not what Claudius, remember Claudius, that's not what he was hoping for. Right? He, he wanted answers. 
He wanted the truth. He wanted to know why Paul was giving him such a headache. But instead of finding relief from his headache, it seemed like his headache was growing. In this shocking turn of events, the Pharisees now had taken the side of Paul, and this civil hearing had turned into, a, it turned into chaos instead. And it's not that the, the Pharisees had any love for Paul, but they had no love for the Sadducees at all. And they would take Paul's words regarding the resurrection, regarding the vision that he had seen, and they would use those things as, as their own ammunition. Ammunition in this ongoing feud that they had with the Sadducees. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a, a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Notice how they had taken Paul's testimony and, and kind of changed the details slightly, right? In order that it might, it might fit a little better into their own theology. And they weren't willing to accept a resurrected Jesus. They couldn't do that. Because if they did that, well, then they would have to accept Jesus' teachings as well. But perhaps a spirit, perhaps an angel had spoken to Paul. And Paul just simply misunderstood the vision that was given to him. And here's the thing. If this trial was truly about Paul's hope in the resurrection, then, then who's to say that the Pharisees wouldn't be next? If they allowed the Sadducees to get their way, then who's to say that they wouldn't do this again? That they wouldn't start convicting people based on their pharisaical beliefs? Paul may have been misguided in what he saw, but he was not derelict to the law of God. Now you can see the cunning of the Apostle Paul, right? He's shrewd as a serpent, innocent as a dove. Well, as the chaos was beginning to increase, this forced Claudius, this Roman tribune, to take action. Look at verse 10. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And so this civil hearing that Claudius was hoping for never really materialized. Instead, violence ensued. And this is why he had to step in again in order to secure Paul's protection. For Paul was still under his care. And if anything had happened to him, he would be the one to blame. And so Claudius was forced to intervene. But even though this didn't have the outcome that Claudius wanted, it's not as though that Claudius didn't learn anything. For he was beginning to realize that Paul truly was innocent. That he had done nothing wrong, at least according to Roman law. And that these Jews were disputing over things within their own laws and their own traditions. And so there was no sufficient charge that Claudius could lay upon Paul. And this is proven by, by the letter that he would shortly send to Governor Felix. Look at, look at a few verses ahead. Look at Acts 23, verses 26 and 29. 
Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused and about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And so in, in Claudius's eyes, Paul was innocent. He had done nothing that warranted this outrage, that warranted receiving this harsh, harsh wrath from the Jewish religious leaders. But that's what happens when you live an upright life in the Lord. There, there is no true charge that a society can bring against you. Because if you are following the Lord, then you are following the will of the one who is the very definition of good. Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16 say this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Paul's light was shining through, and Claudius was beginning to see it. Claudius would not condemn this man. And neither would Jesus. Look at our last verse. Look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. If Paul's confidence had been wavering, it need not waver any further. For that very night, the Lord Jesus came to him once more, bringing him the encouragement that he needed. You see, by, by, by stating that Paul had testified to the facts about himself, Jesus was letting Paul know that he was pleased with his servant. That Paul had accomplished all that he had asked of him in that city. That Paul had his Lord's approval. How many of you would like to hear a message like that from your Savior? That you're doing a good job? That you are pleasing him? Amen. I know I would. <laughs> Here's the thing. When we go through passages like this, sometimes we can get caught up idolizing a man like Paul. Right? I mean, he seems perfect, doesn't he? Even in his flaws... He's given a chance to demonstrate how humble he truly is, right? But what we have to understand is that, that Luke was writing this for a reason, and he doesn't always give us the details that fit between the lines. Paul didn't spend every single moment of his life trying to please God, though it may seem this way. I'm sure there were plenty of times 
when his sinfulness got the best of him. He wasn't a perfect man. For, for if he was, well, then he wouldn't need Jesus now, would he? And yet the question that, that Luke is answering truly is demonstrated through Paul's life. And that question is this. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? The answer is nobody. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Nobody. When Paul claimed his innocence, what did the high priest do? He, he commanded that Paul be struck in the mouth. And why? Because this man knew that if Paul were to testify, that he would prove his innocence. And so he ordered for his mouth to be shut in order that he might convict the man. And when Paul was rash and, and, and spoke harshly, what did we see Paul do? He quickly repented. And when, when one repents, God in his mercy loves to forgive. And then when things got heated between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, it, it, it became evident even to Claudius that this apostle Paul did nothing wrong. That he was innocent. And more importantly, Paul found his true commendation when King Jesus came to visit and told him to take courage, for he had given a faithful testimony. And when Jesus doesn't condemn you, well, then who can? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Exactly, nobody. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34 say this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Was Paul a perfect man? <laughs> Not by any stretch of the imagination. And yet he lived his life before God in all good conscience. And the reason he could do that was because Jesus Christ was his Savior. Because God, because God had chosen Paul. And as God's chosen, all of his sins were paid for when Christ went to the cross. And this is the truth for every single person who has turned from their sins and has trusted in Jesus. You no longer stand condemned. Amen. There, there is none who can bring any charge against you. Because if the judge of this universe doesn't condemn, then who can? Maybe you have come here today and, and you have a heavy conscience. There are things that are weighing you down. You don't need to if you have Christ. 
Do you want to have a clear conscience? Then trust in Jesus. Trust in the forgiveness that comes from the cross. Trust that all of your sins were paid for. All of them. Through the shed blood of your Savior. Don't let the weight of your guilt and your shame drag you down. For there is none who can condemn you if you are a Jesus child. And that's because Jesus, your king, he has declared you as innocent. And so just like Paul, you can say with confidence, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your son and what he did for us so that we can now live our lives before you in all good conscience. And so we ask that you would help us Help us to walk in your ways. That that we would repent when we do sin against you. That our good deeds would become a bright light to the world around us. That we would testify concerning your son to those who are lost and in need of the gospel. We can only do these things through the mighty power that comes from your Holy Spirit. So fill us, we pray, and guide us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.